Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the fact that when you speak, you speak reality to us. When you speak, you don't hide truth, but you reveal truth. And you reveal that truth so that we can live in the light with you. So we surrender ourselves to learning this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Did I ever tell you that at one time I was a male model? Why are you laughing? Because it's true. A member of our church had a business that figured out what colors you should wear. And what she did is she had trained her consultants at our place, at our church, and they would come in and they'd be trained to tell you whether you're summer, spring, autumn, or what are the other one, fall or, or winter. So they would, they would evaluate, based on your hair color and on your skin coloring, what colors you should wear. And since I was handy, she would use me as a model. And she'd bring me in and the, they'd have to figure out what my uh, color palette was and what I was supposed to read. And she actually published me in her book. So, okay, I will be, I will be signing autographs afterwards, if any of you want them. Now, after I'd gone through all of this with her, it filed away in my brain somewhere and disappeared entirely. And so on one occasion, I went and bought myself a nice new suit. And the first Sunday I wore it, she came out of church and she, she noticed, oh, you got a new suit today. And then I asked her that shocking question I shouldn't have asked. I said, is it the right color for me? And there was this prickly silence. And she said, no, that's the wrong color you should ever wear as a suit. It was kind of like the color of my, my pants here today. But the next week she came to church and she gave me a gift. And inside that gift was a shirt and a tie of a color schemes that I would never have chosen for myself. And she said, wear that shirt and tie with the new suit and it'll light it up. And so a couple of weeks later I did exactly that. And you wouldn't believe how many people coming out of church said, man, you look good today. And it was like, well, what about last week? I mean, what? So that, that color palette, that thing there was, 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 in a sense, was real. That there are certain colors that you and I should wear because they either light us up or they, if you wear the wrong colors, it drains you. Uh, of, of, of your coloring. And so if any of you want consulting afterwards, I will sit down with you and help you. But here's a strange thing. When you open the scriptures, we're told that there are certain colors every single one of us should wear as church members. And so what I'm going to call, what we're going to talk about today is how to dress as a church. Not how to dress for church, but how to dress as a church. And the one thing I want you to notice that we're going to be reading some rather shocking statements that we, some, and of course what, what the passage is going to do is not talk about our clothing, but talk about the fact that we are to clothe ourselves with the kind of character traits and behaviors that represent our God. And as we study those and, and as we deal with them, He's going to tell us that this is how specifically we dress in our relationships with one another. Of course, it affects outside world. But some of what we're going to read, you're going to be going, are you kidding? That the writer to the Colossian church had to tell them not to do this in their relationships with one another? And the answer is yes. 
In the early days when the church was first being birthed, people didn't know how to relate to other people. They didn't know how to love. They didn't know how to care for people. They had to be trained how to be normal human beings. And unfortunately, as we look at what's happening in our culture, we need retraining. And so you will notice that there are a lot of negative things. You think, I can't believe the church members had to be told to stop doing this. Well, they had to in that culture, in that day and age. But you'll see, unfortunately, we still do some of that in our day and age. So Paul is writing to a baby church. We're doing a series right now on how we are the, the one another's that we're to do for one another. And the one another that this passage is leading to is that we must learn how to forgive one another. But in order to get there, I've got to show you the setting in which it's given. So Paul's writing to the Colossians church, and he tells them how we'd address as a church. And the first thing he says is, we'd address as citizens of heaven. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. That's one thing to keep clearly in mind. That up until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're just an ordinary human being. But once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells you are a new creation. You're the first new thing created since God stopped creating the universe. After God finished creating the universe, he created nothing new until the first Christian was born again. And from then on, he's been creating this new race of people, this new tribe of people. These new people who are not ordinary human beings. And what we're called to do is we're not allowed to live as ordinary human beings any longer. We have to live as citizens of heaven. And here's why. Because that's how God is communicating to the world that he is real. He said when the world looks at people in a church, they would know that God is real and they would know that Jesus is God because of the way we love one another. And so that's what this is another one of those passages that teach us how to love one another. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Notice that first sentence. You have been raised with Christ. That is the most astonishing thought. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your eternal life is already in session right now. You're just hanging out on this earth and we've got work to do while we're here on earth. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, as far as God is concerned, you are now as if you've already been raised with Christ. You've, been, you've left death behind you completely. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so he's saying to us as a church, the way you dress yourself as a church, you dress yourself in glory. You, the model that we are to model ourselves after is Jesus Christ. Because God's intention is that you and I would become more and more like Jesus every day that we live. Are you guys awake? All right. Now, he uses the concept of taking off old, filthy, stained clothing and putting on the new clothing that we should, should wear. And he uses the word here when he speaks about lifestyle, it's a word walkabout. So I've chose, of all things, good old dirty shoes to, to, to describe the, the old man. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the old you, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. Now, are you shocked by that? That a church would have to be told 
that sexual immorality doesn't belong among you? Guys, there are people who are attending churches today who live constantly outside the boundaries of marriage. God said that sex is, is designed for the protection of marriage. And I, just this week, discussed with somebody that her husband's having an affair and he and his girlfriend are going to church. Like, hello, what in the world do you think you're doing that you would have an affair with somebody and the two of you are happily sitting in church and singing songs? The Bible says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And so that's frightening. So you look at this and you go, really? Did, you have, did he have to tell Christians that they should stop doing these kind of things? And the answer is, yeah. Because we all have the tendency to slip back into those kind of behaviors. That's where we were comfortable living before Christ came into our lives. And that's where we will default to unless we're very alert to it. He says, for example, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. These are the kind of things that used to be part of your life. They should not be part of the life of the family of God who are followers after Jesus Christ. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image, so it renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. In other words, stop lying, stop twisting the truth to one another. Make sure that as you relate to one another, you keep your anger under control, your rage, your bitterness. Deal with it. That's how people live who have, do not have Christ in their lives. That's not how God's people should be living. And he says, and here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And he's saying to us that within the church, there should be no racial discrimination. If you watch the news, the amount of racial discrimination that's happening in this country is starting to grow, especially against Jewish people. And what's horrifying is how many of these groups that will attack Jews, that will, that will destroy their, their synagogues, that will go into their, their um, uh, property and paint swastikas all over them. Many of those groups call themselves Christian. They're not Christian. Remember Jesus said this. He said, on the day of judgment, some people are going to come to him and we're gonna, they're going to say to him, we did these wonderful things in your, in your name. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And so when you have these, these groups, and by the way, what's scary is it's now right wing and left wing groups that are becoming more and more involved in this kind of racism. It's just amazing to watch how that racism is growing. That's part of what's happening to a country that fractures, a, a country that has become um, so separated from one another that some of the awful darkness is coming out of us. But when somebody says this is a Christian thing to do and they have crosses and they wear crosses on themselves, understand that is not Christian. Those are just simply people who are using it as a flag, as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to present themselves wrong. They are not Christian. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we're told that when people come into the church, they should find that as they move into here, the normal kind of way that people resolve their conflicts with one another doesn't happen here. Usually people get angry and they go raging and they get all kinds of bitterness and they fight over little issues. When people walk into a church that go, you know, this is so refreshing. 
This is an environment where that doesn't happen. And when they come in, they find that this, this is not a place where you're going to be confronted with racism because the, the church would be open to people of all races that are present among us. During the war for freedom in uh, what used to be southern Rhodesia, one of the most amazing things was that on Sundays, the races began to blend in church. It was almost as if blacks and whites found out that there's one safe place we can go, and that is when we go together in church. And so that's one of the factors, that people coming into church should not walk into an environment where there's a low level of hostility among the people, where there's, they, when they come in, there mustn't be the sense of there's something wrong in this church at all. By the way, sometimes it's great to preach a sermon when there's not a problem you're addressing, okay? So that's, I'm not saying, oh, oh, there's something terribly bad going wrong in the church, not at all. Just fortunately, this passage takes us there before we have to go there. So take off the old human, and then he says, put on the new human. Watch what the new human is like. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice how we're described. We're described as God's chosen people. Holy. The word holy, we usually think means pure. And it does. But it means set apart for God. I think I've mentioned to you that in my home where I grew up, we had a tea set. Cups and saucers and plates that were set apart for when the Queen of England comes to tea. In all of the years that, that, that of my growing up, we never touched any of those cups. We never touched anything on that upper level of, of the hutch because that tea set was holy. It was set apart for when the Queen of England comes to tea. She never did, so it's still waiting for her to come <laughs> to tea. That's what holy means. As as when the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, we're told you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You now belong to Jesus Christ. And you've been set apart for God. You're, you don't get to live life any old way. You don't get to live life the way you naturally live. You don't get to live life the way that you are bent toward. You don't get to because you've lost that right. You now are set aside for God. You're God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. One of the hardest things for us to accept is the love of God. And yet, that's where it all started. I've got to just read this to you. Let me, let me quickly find this. Because I think it's such a great description of why God uh, created us. Don't go away. C.S. Lewis wrote this. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Did you hear that? Listen to this again. God who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures. That's us. In order that he may love and perfect them. Why did God create us? We don't know, except for the fact that his love spilled over and he created people and he created people in his own image. And he created us because he wanted to have a people who he could love, who could love him in return. My daughter's visiting. Hi, Mandy. She just flew into town on, on Friday night, which is kind of exciting. And she, when Mandy was here once before, she adopted this little 
dog. <laughs> this yappy little creature that the minute you walk into the house, it's barking at everybody like now. That little dog belonged to her. He's named Bernie. But Bernie has given his heart to somebody else at her house. And so now Mandy needs a dog that will give itself entirely to her because Bernie has now adopted somebody else who lives in her household and will go to that person first. See, I can understand love when I see that in my daughter. God loves us. He set us apart for himself and he wants us to love him in return fully. That's what God wants from us. Holy and dearly loved. He says, so clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion means to be inwardly moved by the need of somebody else. The old translations of it used to uh, translate this bowels of mercy. That awful word, bowels of mercy. And that's because when you are moved with compassion, it happens down here. And so their way of describing it is that there's an inner movement that we should be people who are moved with compassion. Kindness is you act on it. Humility means, again, you put the other person first. Humility never means you lower yourself. Humility does not mean that you make yourself a doormat. It does not mean that you lessen yourself. Humility means you lift the other person up. And then gentleness. Gentleness is a mother lion who's being nibbled by the little cub who's biting on her ear all the time. And that mother lion could just go and kill that little creature, but it takes it. That's what gentleness is. Incredible power, but power that's under control. Somebody translated it velvet steel and patience. <laughs> Let's move on because that one I can't handle. <laughs> it means long, long suffering. In fact, he builds on it. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. He tells us to bear with one another because sometimes we're unbearable. Think of that. Any, know anybody unbearable? Of course. There are people who just wear on you, wear on you, wear on you. And bearing with one another is a statement that, that prepares us to understand that relationships are a long process. This passage, by the way, let me back this up just for a second. I want to imagine if every married couple obeyed these, these verses. No marriage would have to end. If, every, if, if a husband and wife both obeyed these things, no marriage would ever have to end. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness. Kindness, when, when you first start dating, you open the door for her. And then after you're married a few years, she's lucky the door's not Oh, not closed when you pull away. Imagine couples treating one another with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Most relationships and most marriages end to a horrible process. Sometimes they end with one horrible, terrible thing. But often what happens with relationships and marriages is that there's an issue that you don't forgive and another issue that you don't forgive, and another issue that you don't forgive. And slowly but surely, a wall builds between you one brick at a time. 
until you've isolated yourselves from one another. And you no longer feel compassion for one another. You no longer treat one another gently. You're no longer patient with one another because you haven't done the second thing. Forgive grievance, whatever grievances you may have against one another. Notice there's no limitation on it. We're going to take a look at this next week. Peter came to Jesus when Jesus was teaching about forgiveness. And Peter said to him, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? <laughs> and he was being generous. Oh, man, I'm so holy. Seven times. Somebody does something wrong to me, I'll forgive him seven times. Seven is the holy number, so it must be that. What would Jesus say to him? He said to him, 70 times seven. In other words, it never ends. God calls us to do the most insanely difficult thing, and that is to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. And it's an impossible thing to do because human beings are not capable of forgiving because we have inside of us the sense of justice. If something's done something wrong to me, somebody's done something wrong to me, they need to be punished. And they need to be punished to the extent that I feel satisfied they were punished enough. But see, that's the human wiring inside of us. Forgiveness, by the way, I believe is really one of the most difficult things that God requires us to do. But God never gives us a command without giving us the resources. So if you are now a child of God, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And He and only He can empower you to do this kind of forgiveness. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did Jesus forgive us? Conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. It's done. It's taken away from us completely. Now, in order to understand what forgiveness is, here's some things it's not. It's not overlooking the wrong. It's not that you bury it, you pretend it didn't happen. When something is done wrong, and especially if it crosses, crosses legal boundaries, then you have to act on that. I think I've told you the story once of meeting with a family. We were just having casual dinner with them, and they mentioned that the man next door had sexually molested their little girl. And it was like, oh, are you kidding? What did you do? And the father said, I forgave him. It's like, no, 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 no. First, you arrest him. First, you call the cops. First, you throw that man in jail. Then, maybe later on, you can get around to forgiving him. But he needs to go to jail. That man needs to be taken away because he's going to do this to other little girls as well if you don't stop him right now. And so forgiveness is not overlooking what has been done to you. And even in a case where it's not something that, that extreme, it doesn't mean that God is saying, just pretend it didn't happen and move on. You can't, okay? Because notice the last one, it's not forgetting. We cannot forget. God is not telling us that we should practice amnesia. We can't forget. It's there in our memories and it's gonna keep coming back. So forgiveness does not mean Forgetting. Forgiveness also does not mean permitting the abuse to continue. So if you're in a relationship with somebody and that person abuses you physically or mentally or emotionally, it doesn't mean that God says, I want you to stay. I want you to stay in there and let them keep abusing you. No. Sometimes the, the right thing to do is to separate in order to protect yourself and also to bring that person to a place of, of repentance, a place of, of awareness of what you're doing is definitely wrong. So forgiveness is not overlooking the wrong, it's not permitting abuse to, to continue, and it's not forgetting, because none of us can do that.
Forgiveness is, first of all, a decision I make to protect myself from being injured over and over and over again. My father grew up on a farm. And as a farmer, he knew how to use a bullwhip. And he could take that bullwhip and he could crack it in the air. Just bam, bam. Wherever he needed to put it, he could take this bullwhip and he could make it sing. And so one day, I decided I wanted to learn how to use a bullwhip. So I went out in the backyard and I wound up and I flung it in the air and it came back and it sliced my shin open. I mean, it was, it's like, it is, it's as if you took a knife and went across my shin. It was like, ah, oh, I can't believe that. I'm just, so I'm not going to try and do it here today. But sometimes someone has inflicted something on you that has hurt terribly and deeply. And in order for me to move on, in order for you to move on, we've got to do whatever is necessary to protect ourselves from this thing continually beating us up. And so often what happens is that instead of trying to move toward forgiveness, we keep this thing. We keep it there and we keep repeating the offense. We play it over and over and over again, and we keep injuring ourselves. Someone said this, that for refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Doesn't work that way. And so sometimes, and God tells us, God requires us, God commands us to forgive. And he does so for one reason, to protect us from being injured over and over again. And that is an incredibly difficult decision to make. But think about it. If you don't make the decision, you're making a decision that I'm going to carry this with me for the rest of my life, and I'm going to re-injure myself over and over and over again with the memory of it. So we can't forget. But there has to be some kind of a process that helps us to leave that in the past. And that's where forgiveness comes in. So, forgiveness is a decision I must make to keep on forgiving and to leave punishment or mercy in God's hands. Bible tells us, don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but with a blessing instead. And God says, let me take care of punishment or of mercy. When you've got somebody who's injured you in the past, one thing to do is, is to understand that only God knows how to deal with that person. And he knows exactly how to deal with that person. There's a great word, providence. When you pray, you pray for providence on that person, which means, God, I'm giving this person into your hands. If they need to be punished, I'll trust you that you will punish them. If they need to be forgiven, I trust you that you will forgive them. Because, guys, all of us, need forgiveness in our own lives. All of us need mercy. And so when you pray for somebody who's injured you and you pray for providence in their lives, what you're doing is you're placing them in God's hands and saying, God, I give her or him over to you. I don't know how to deal with this, but I leave him or her in your hands that you may, in your time, in your place, in your way, you will make the decision how to bring that person to the place where they should be in, in their lives. Understand this. 
God is way better at disciplining and punishing than you and I ever could be. Way better. He knows exactly how to do it in such a way that that person has the opportunity to turn their lives around and to repent. Now you say, wait, wait a minute. What do I do if the person who's injured me refuses to admit that they did something wrong? Well, notice that's another injury on top of it. They've injured you, and they refuse to say that they admit that they did something wrong. So when do I start the process of forgiving? Do I wait until they admit that they did something wrong? You may wait the rest of your life, okay? And so there's something God wants us to do. He wants us to unshackle ourselves from an injury. <laughs> I wish it was just one, hey? but wants to unshackle ourselves from an injury in the past. And so what forgiveness is, is a decision I make that I'm gonna forgive this person, but I can't forget it. And it's gonna follow me. And so decision to, this decision to forgive is a decision I make that I know I'm gonna have to keep remaking it. And so that every time it comes back to my memory, I have to remake the decision that I'm gonna forgive and I'm going to move on. And remember, I'm doing it, first of all, for myself, so that I am not held in this place of bitterness. There are some people who have an argument that goes back years in their families, and they're bitter over it, and they've held onto that bitterness all the years, and they're miserable because of that bitterness. Why would you want to inflict that on yourself? So, come, so be, confessing, and, and I mean giving forgiveness, is a choice that I make that I'm going to keep on making. And here's what's interesting that happens, is that over time it loses its potency. As you keep doing that, over time it begins to, to fall away and begins to leave, be, be left behind. And so it's one of those things that, that God tells us to do, that he tells us because he wants us to be like him, and that is forgiving he wants us to be merciful to others the way he's merciful to us. He wants that person to receive mercy, but he also wants us on our own to be in a place where we are set free from those things that hold us back in the past. Just one other thought, by the way. You can forgive somebody who has injured you. You can't forgive somebody who's injured somebody else. And sometimes forgiving somebody who's injured somebody else may actually get between them and God. For example, remember Dylan Claybold, who walked into a church, invited into a Bible study, killed seven people in that Bible study, and the next day, one of the women who's, uh, I think it was her brother was killed, she stood up and she said, I want him to know I forgive him. And it's like, no, 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 no. Right now, he needs to face the consequences of what he's done. Right now, he needs to be left in a place where he desperately needs the forgiveness of God. And so whatever you do, don't get in the way. Leave that person there so that when the time comes, it'll be appropriate. So this is actually, by the way, the introduction to next week's sermon. Um, we're going to pick this idea up next week. Where do we go next? Where do we go when somebody has injured us? How do we handle it in the life of a church? What do we do with it? Well, the Spirit of God says this, and over all these virtues, put on the love that will not let go which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
going back to that image of dressing ourselves, he says, and the one thing that we should always dress ourselves with is this love that will never let go. It's the Greek word agape, uh, which has no English equivalent. There, there are lots of words for love in the Greek language. There was the word eros, from which we get the, co the concept, concept of erotic. But unfortunately, we, we tend to think of it only as, as a word that, that relates to sexual things. That's not what, what eros really meant. Eros means that I, it's the kind of love that satisfies my desires, that wins my admiration, that fulfills my appetites. It's not necessarily a bad kind of love, okay? There's also the love philos love, from which we get Philadelphia, the love of family members. The word here is the word agape. You see, the other kinds of love are too fragile. Think about Sleeping Beauty. If she'd been sleeping plain when the prince arrived, he'd have taken a look at her and gone, girl, you need beauty sleep. <laughs> Snow White and Cinderella. They'd have said, no, no, mm -mm, not going to kiss you. And see, that's how we are. Even Rapunzel, she never had a bad hair day. Think about that. We as human beings are capable of certain kinds of love. And the love is usually a love that goes towards someone or something that we find attractive. This kind of love goes the other way. This kind of love is a love that is motivated by the Spirit of God and it goes to give value to the other person. Notice that? It's not to get value from the other person. It's to give value to the, that other person. It creates value in that other person. I read a story that illustrates it for me so effectively. Paul Post was a 16-year-old boy riding on his bicycle when he collided with a car driven by a 16-year-old boy by the name of Tommy Martin, and he was killed. And Jane wrote this. At the funeral, the driver, Tommy, came up to apologize to me his lip was quivering, and he was kind of pushed there by his parents. He went to the same school as my son. I wondered, wow, if I had done this, what would I be feeling? What would I want people to say to me? In a divine intersecting moment, I thought, I know where my son is. I don't know where this kid is going. I had Paul's ring in my pocket, and I pulled it out and gave it to Tommy. And I said, this is so you will know that I forgive you and that God loves you. It was a terrible accident. And if you could take it back, you would. I know you would. He asked, how can you forgive me? I said, I can't. In the natural, I can't. But in the supernatural, I can. And let me tell you why. And she said, because my boy believed in Jesus, I know where he is. And I want you to believe in Jesus too. On the one year anniversary of Paul's death, Jane invited some kids over from, from his high school to her house. I told them that my son knew Jesus and he would want them to know God too. 24 kids put their faith in Jesus that night. Tommy was one of them. She says, God redeemed a death day and made it 
a birthday. At last report, Tommy was about to graduate from law school and was helping refugees seeking asylum in the United States. Jane says this, forgiveness is for you and also for the other person so that you can both move on. That's what God wants us to do, is to be able to leave it behind. Next week we'll deal with, well then, how do we handle it? How do we handle conflict between members of the church? And unfortunately, well, we could stay. All right, I'll go on. No. <laughs> I'll ask our music team to come. We have a great song to end with. But while they come, this is the kind of message that stirs all kinds of anxieties and, and feelings. Anybody have a question or a thought that you'd want us to address? I'll put you to sleep again. Toilet. <laughs>